Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. You're listening to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. Throughout the upcoming weeks and months, PowerShift's project is partnering with the Oxfam In-Depth podcast to share the experiences of people living through the coronavirus pandemic. Hello, welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. I'm your guest host, Shahid, presenting this special feature episode for Refugee Week. This year's theme for Refugee Week is Imagine. This is an invitation for us to imagine the world post-COVID-19 that is kinder and fairer to refugees and asylum seekers who have fled their countries searching for it. In this episode, we're reaching out across borders to the voices and experiences of refugee activists who are working creatively to tackle the impact of COVID-19 in their communities. We have witnessed how the pandemic exposed gaps and shortcomings in the ways governments, communities and aid organizations work. Currently, grassroots community activism is transforming the way we think about human mobility and refugee rights as it forces us to center the reality of refugees and put them at the heart of our policy making. In this episode, I'm speaking to two brilliant refugee community activists. We will be exploring their current work with refugees and asylum seekers and how they are shifting and yielding power during the pandemic. Talking to me today is Lorraine Ponella. Lorraine is from Malawi and she has lived in the UK for over 12 years. She is the current chairperson for Coventry Asylum and Refugee Action Group, CARAG. Lorraine's educational background is in public health and she co-founded Malawi Public Health Forum which is a platform that seeks to engage politicians and advocates for people's rights in relation to health. Hi, Lorraine. Hello. And we also have Ubay Kurdali. He is a Syrian activist based in Gaziantep, Turkey, since 2015. Ubay has started working in the field of building peace bridges since 2013. He also joined the Peace Ambassadors of Mubadirun and co-founded the Nonviolent Behaviors Initiative, which supports youth in developing nonviolent mechanisms. Currently, Ubay is leading the network of My Home is Your Home, which seeks to maintain and enhance, enhance solidarity and synergy among different refugee communities during COVID-19. Hi, Ubay. Hi, Shahed. Hi, Lorraine. And hi, everybody. Okay. So just to get us started, could you guys tell me a little bit about the work you've been doing recently with refugee communities and asylum seekers in response to COVID? Yeah, so I'll talk a little bit about the background to Kalag. So, yeah, Kalag, we are based here in Coventry in the United Kingdom, and uh, it's a group comprising of asylum seekers, refugees, as well as migrants, but it's regardless of one's immigration status. So it comprises of people who have been refused asylum or they are still in the process of regularizing their stay or even undocumented migrants. So all of us would come together and formed this group, Kalag. So as you might be aware that the government, at the start of the pandemic, they moved homeless people into hotels and places like that here in Coventry, in Kalag, we also have people who are who were homeless before the COVID-19. So the places where they were moved to, they didn't have access to the kitchen and they didn't have any any more support from the government, just uh, the accommodation. So maybe they get some little support from a charity, for example, like five pound a day, which if you think you come to think of it, it's not enough. 
it's not enough to buy your breakfast, it's not enough to buy your lunch, it's not enough to buy your supper, let alone your hygiene materials like shower gels and stuff like that. So what we are doing at Kalag is we've set up a project which we call Right to a Meal Project. So in this project, we afford one meal a day to everyone who doesn't have access to kitchen. So one of the Kalag members, a lady called Last, volunteered to cook from her own kitchen. And then we put a call out for volunteers who would deliver food. So apart from the cooking of food, we, we also have like some form of destitution fund. We've been trying to raise money to help people with some of the problems that have come up. For example, people want to stay in touch with each other. We used to meet weekly, but we cannot meet now. So people need phone credit, maybe to join a meeting online, or they just want to call their friends, or they want to talk with each other on WhatsApp. They need data. So we give like small, small amounts depending on how much donations we have received. We also do like some food supplies, deliveries to people who are unwell, people who maybe have suffered from like strokes, some people with mental health issues. So we buy like buy fruits, juice, biscuits and stuff like that, depending on what one needs or what one has asked for. And some people it's because maybe they, they they are maybe in the category where they have to they were supposed to be shielded, but maybe that support is not there for them. So we try and help each other in terms of that. At the same time, like in my case, I I practice writing a lot. So part of my advocacy has been through writing articles to just highlight the issues that we are facing, and that also generated a lot of. Uh, uh, empathy from the from the local community and people came back and asked how they could help so that's how we managed to get like a good amount of money to help us with the cooking as well as to buy small things to give to people but we also have like a- apart from people who are street homeless who have been helped by the government we also have like people who live in charity houses but they get no money or they get like 10 pound a week which is really hard in this time of the pandemic because maybe during normal days they used to go to charities to collect some food somewhere else and other stuff from different places they can no longer do that now and that 10 pound is not enough for everything so we also look at people who are in that situation so Maybe the last group that I can talk about is like uh, what they call maybe undocumented migrants or something like that, where sometimes you live with your friends. The usual term many people use is sofa safers or something like that. Because if someone can keep you, can provide you with accommodation, but they may not provide you with everything. So maybe during the normal times, they used to go out and look for something somewhere else, which they cannot do now. So in this moment, they are also stuck looking for help. So that's as long as they are in touch with us, we are doing something around that as well. Thanks, Lorraine. That's great work that Karak is doing. And I've actually read one of your articles published recently. It's just brilliant. So thank you. Obey, do you want to jump in? Yes, sure. And thank you, Lorraine, for this really efficient project. Actually, I will talk more about the Syrian situation in Turkey. And I will try to elaborate more about the initiatives I'm leading right now and which is more social-based initiative. You know, because of the corona pandemic and during this home isolation experience, social distancing contributed negatively 
to the dramatic growth of community divergence. However, many socio-local initiatives have been launched to tackle harmful circumstances and overcome obstacles. The magnificent hallmark of those initiatives is that there are refugees-led and zero-cost initiatives. So I'm really honored to have the chance of leading the network of My Home is Your Home, which is a network of Syrian volunteers from all around the world who are providing their full voluntary support to other Syrians during, during the isolation. The services they are providing are online services. So they are launching language training courses, dialogue sessions for youth, and psychosocial support sessions for those who are asking for this kind of services. And this is actually through experts and local organizations who are well-known in providing such kind of supports. But all of these relations are based on voluntary approach. So all of the team and also the relationships are provided for free. The network right now is consists of over 70 volunteers and reached out to around 200 Syrians in different places, but most of them are in Turkey. Yeah, that sounds really great. Especially the theme of social isolation seems to be, you know, a, the most significant impact of COVID-19 across across borders, it seems. Lorraine, yeah? Yeah, I'm kind of like also excited about uh, your project, Obai, where people are going online and then maybe accessing different services because for us in our group that has been the problem because of language so in your case i guess it's because you are saying it's amongst Syrians. so maybe you have one language but in in our case where you have like french speaking Urdu, amharic language is really a big barrier even during this covid the information might be there but if it's in english not everyone can read english or it's some languages have been translated, but some people can only understand that language. They can't read it. So it's been really, really hard to get things around that. So I'm learning to you, from you about where you're from one particular country doing something for that country. I think that's, that's also very powerful. Uh, yes, sure. Because as you know, for Syrians who are living in Turkey right now, they have to speak the Turkish language and not all of them can speak Turkish. So one of the ideas was to invest in this period of isolation to provide some free trainings for Syrians to practice Turkish language at home. And that will be really helpful even for the period of after or the post pandemic. So they will be like well trained during this home isolation and we can take this, let's say, obstacle and look at it as a chance when we can have the chance to overcome this obstacle. Maybe we could be more ready to be engaged with the hosting community. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Lorraine and Obey. Maybe this can take us to the next question, which was about the significant challenges that you are finding at the moment, that COVID-19 has either created or actually intensified within the communities that you're working with. Lorraine, if you want to get us started. Yeah. So as asylum seekers, refugees and migrants living in here in the UK, yeah, for me, the challenge, the biggest challenge is anxiety, fear and anxiety. We already live with anxiety even before COVID-19 because we have anxiety around whether you will be evicted if you are living in a home office accommodation or whether you will be detained or whether you will be 
deported and stuff like that. So anxiety is part of the life that we already live. But with the coming of the COVID-19, COVID-19 has also just added on top of that layer more and more anxiety. So I'll give you a bit of things that I have seen and I see on my day-to-day life. Like I, I, I did mention about the translations where people have problems to, to access the information about COVID. People have expressed worries about, would I even get treated, for example, if I get sick? Probably it's because maybe they haven't had access to information about the care that they can receive when they are sick. Or some people are just worried about, what if I die? I'm not from this country. What, you know, how will my parents know about this? Some people are just worried about because COVID, it looks like it's long term, it's taking longer. So what will happen? Because we we still need to go like to see our solicitors, which we can't do now. So what will happen? I mean, this is state of limbo where I was maybe in the middle of collecting my evidence so that I can submit my claims to home office, but I cannot do that now. So what what will happen? How long will I stay in this situation? So, yeah, that's one one form of anxiety. But the other anxiety that has come during this time of COVID is, yes, people were already homeless before the COVID-19, and now they've been put in temporary accommodation. But there is no clarity about whether they will continue to stay there after COVID or not. We just hear that the support will come to end. When will it end? People have anxiety around Would I go back to the street? What will happen? Because come to think of it, you were homeless. Yes, you accept as it is. And then one minute you are put in an accommodation and you feel like, oh, I'm safe here. I've got my own room. Then a minute later, you are being told to go out again and go back in the street. So people have got worries and anxiety around their situation about what will happen post-COVID regarding my temporary accommodation that have been given. So similarly with uh, people, for example, who are put in accommodation where they are sharing with strangers, like 10 people sharing a kitchen by home office, sharing a kitchen and bathrooms. People have anxiety. Are these strangers safe? Are they observing this social distancing or they are not? And because in the house we can't do this social distancing, we are too many and people are worried, are they, do they have COVID? Do they not have COVID? So that has also added people's anxiety. Even people who are, we, we just had a lady not long ago. She was living with somebody else. And that somebody else says, you know what? I'm also myself struggling. So can you leave this house? Living with someone, definitely, naturally, you're expected to be contributing in some way. But during this COVID, a lot of people are struggling, so she has nothing to contribute towards the house where she was given this refuge. So basically, she's at that verge of being homeless again. And in this era where it's also very hard to prove that you are homeless, you need help. They've been really, really hard in terms of like, if you were not known to the charity before that you're a homeless person, how can you be homeless now? So that has left also like, People stuck with the, this anxiety of all oh, my accommodation, my this. Another one is anxiety around going online. I know people say that refugees are good with the technology, but when you are in this country, in the UK, most of the times, most of us, we don't even want to go online because we know when you go online, your account will be monitored. So if you're on Facebook, 
you'll be there with different names, not your own names. So now that people are required to use Zoom to stay in touch, people still have anxiety. If I go on there, who is monitoring me, who is following me, or who will see me? So that is also like a challenge way to have to convince, you know, your friends say, actually, no, it's safe, let's go. But there is already stories about going online and how you are being monitored, and that can contribute to the outcome of your case or something like that. So people still have anxiety around that. I see. And thank you, Lorraine, for this. And it's just a quick question for you. It's about that asylum seekers and refugees fearing actually to go online because they fear to be monitored. Do you hear, for example, people or do do these refugees say who will be monitoring them? Do they specify who will be monitoring them? Yeah, there's just a belief that the government would be monitoring. So this would be home office, basically. I heard someone even, they are working but they said they were refusing to talk to media. Eh? He's working, he has papers, but he was refusing. The reason he gave, he says, no, because in two years' time, I'll need to renew my visa, so I cannot go in the media to speak with people. It would affect my case when I want to renew. So think of an asylum seeker. You've been refused, and you're around looking for evidence to put up your case, and you're all over in Facebook or whatever it is. Everything that you put, you may not know. Someone uses it against you. So there's always this thing that we we know that it's not good to go online. So people already have fear about that. They'll be monitored and it will work against their case. Therefore, if they can go online, they'll go as anonymous or just don't go on Facebook or things like that. Uh, just to remain on that kind of theme of monitoring, because I've we've heard lots of cases that refugee and asylum seekers specifically refusing to go to the NHS because they fear, actually, that they would be arrested. So can you talk a little bit about that? Recently, in the, in the media again, there was a story about, I've forgotten where this brother of ours was from, but because he, he didn't have right papers to be in this country, he was an undocumented migrant, he had COVID. Because of fear, he didn't, go, he didn't seek help. And he died on his own in his house. So yeah. it's the, the fear is real. Even people that I know, when they started expressing signs and symptoms, they were like, no, I can't go to the hospital. I just don't feel like I'm someone who can go to the hospital and everything just end like that. So definitely everyone associates it like there is a risk and that risk is real. So this is why maybe this person who even lost his life, he just thought, it's, it's the same. I'll just stay at home. If I survive, it's okay. If I don't, then that's it. But that is sad. It's tragic. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that with us, Lorraine. Obey, just on the challenges from where you work and the communities that you work with. Yes, and actually I would like to emphasize on the point anxiety that Lorraine mentioned. I believe that it's the most honest and accurate description of the refugee situation, but I will tackle this point from a different angle. You know, a huge segment of Syrian refugees in Turkey are daily workers, cheap working forces, or people who are not insured in work. So those who are struggling from the sunrise to acquire their food have no chance to stay at home. They will not survive by isolation, but they will starve. 
Although the government is trying to provide some support to fragile communities, this support may not cover the escalated needs of people during the pandemic. And so the refugees rather break isolation and go out. Otherwise, they will stay powerlessly at home and able to respond to their families' needs. And this situation actually contributes dramatically to a significant rise of domestic violence. So I will say something from my own observation. I'm not going to generalize, but I'm going to say from my own experience. Many family members are quarreling for superficial causes, so they are not able to manage their daily conflict wisely for the anxiety and the vague vision of the future has dominated their life. Although the cultural roots contribute to emerging violent behaviors, and I totally know this, but the context occupies a large slice of the pie. So living in this situation will push people to one option, and, and this is really dangerous for the relationship between refugees and the housing community as well. So what if I told you that some humanitarian organization, and I will say some, not all, some humanitarian organizations are involved in pouring oil on the fire. There's no exaggeration. Some NGOs are considered a fundamental pillar of the war economy. Their sustainability is based on refugees' crisis and suffering, and no serious project has been designed so far to provide to provide that independency of refugees from the mercy of NGOs. Otherwise, the interest of such NGOs will drop. All of this will reduce people's option and push them to violence. So when you only have is a hammer, all you see are nails. And in a related context, refugees are subjected to racist practice by some other communities. I totally believe that most of housing communities are really hospitable. However, racism has a harsh, thunderous voice, even from minorities. So some people think that refugees are infected by COVID-19, or they are less aware or less clean. So they look at them badly and avoid them as if they are the cause of, of the COVID. So you can see here the level of anxiety is really raising because of the economic and social situation. This situation is is not new for Syrian refugees, but during the pandemic, it's it become more harsh for them. And their options were really, they have really no options. So that may push them at some points to violent behavior, at some times to like domestic violence, and sometimes to feel like really powerless, where they, they don't have any chance to think forward. These are excellent points, Ubay. Thank you so much for raising them. And they're raising the connection between domestic violence and the anxiety that refugees are feeling at the moment under COVID-19, because as you mentioned, it's heavily linked. So thank you so much. For me, Shahid, I yeah, also picked on the racism that Ubay just mentioned. So like he, at the moment, there are protests going on all over the world. We know it's for Black Lives Matter, but I still feel like whatever wins that Black Lives Matter will have won, that will also have to our advantage as well, whether we're black, white, or whatever color we are in, because refugees, asylum seekers, are equally communities that are hated and discriminated at. So I agree with you, Obayunda. 
Exactly. And, and this will lead us really to think about what we have to change in this world and these relationships, because it's not just because of the COVID, but this kind of problems raised up during this pandemic. But it's really latent in our communities before. So we have really to think deeply what kind of changes we have to, to go through in order to overcome this pandemic with more strength communities. That's an excellent segue to our final point, which is exactly what Ube mentioned. I know the struggle and the challenges are really big and really complex and intersectional. But if you would think about one way or one key change that you want to see happening in your communities at any level, whether organizational level, governmental level, or even national and global level, that would actually create a better world for refugees after COVID-19, what would that key change be? Ubay, would you like to start? Uh, yes, sure. I will build on what I already mentioned. Actually, I believe that one of the most fundamental bases of a better future for refugees is inclusiveness and solidarity. So building solid inter- and intra-relationships among communities is crucial at the moment for its contribution to dwarf the cultural gap and pave the way for strong coexistence. This could be made by establishing dialogue spaces between communities and providing accessibility for refugees to related decision-making platforms. I really believe that the era of thinking in a state of asylum seekers should be ended. It is the time for refugees now to participate effectively in designing their future. And you know, the current pandemic came with an implicit meaning of equality. So the human being nowadays is facing a savage period of life. And this could be helpful in highlighting the importance of equality as no one could survive due to his or her race, religion, or nationality. Thus, solidarity became the inevitable choice of salvation. I really hope that the next phase will be full of social co- uh, conversions. So people will break out the siege of racism and stereotypes, and they will step up to a better way for of social cohesion and engagement as they experience the meaning of Ubuntu, I am because you are. So either we stand with each other or we may fall together. That's an excellent way to put it. Thank you, Ubay. Lorraine, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I agree with you, Ubay. To treat refugees as human beings, let us use the Ubuntu values like you have put it. But I would also add that the countries that are behind starting wars, if they can stop, because countries pretend, eh? they pretend like they they are good at upholding human rights and all, but they are the same countries going underground, supplying firearms and stuff, stabilizing the whole world. This is where the problem starts from. So if the, the countries can be honest enough and stop destabilizing countries, will not have huge problems like we have now. So it's about taking responsibility and stopping the walls. I also wanted to add, for example, here in the UK, where we have hostile environment policies, if the hostile environment policies can be scrapped off, that way we'll see that asylum seekers, refugees, and everyone else 
will be treated as equal. We are discriminated against because even at policy level, at institutional level, we are discriminated. We are discriminated against. So everyone looks at us as that, you know. So I think there are a lot of changes that can be done locally, but at the same time, internationally, these countries stopping supplying firearms, stop starting wars, stop all of that, and let us just be one human family. I second that. Amen. (laughs) Thank you, Lorraine. Okay, I think our time is up today, unfortunately. Lorraine and Ubey, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's It's been really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you, Lorraine and Shahed, for this conversation. It was really awesome and beneficial for, for us as refugees to raise our voices and think about the changes we need to work on in the post period of coronavirus. So thank you so much. The biggest thank is to you guys. I know how busy you are uh, working and just trying to figure out ways to fight this global pandemic. So thank you so much for giving us some of your time. Thank you, everyone, listening to this special Refugee Week episode of Power in the Pandemic. Of course, to find out more about Refugee Week 2020 and the amazing speakers that we've just heard from today, you can find links and resources in the show notes. You can definitely check Obey's initiative, My Home is is Your Home. Follow it, whether you are in the UK or you're in Turkey. And also, if you are in the UK, please donate to CARAG, Lorraine's organization. They are doing amazing and much-needed work. It's led by Refugees for Refugees. We need your support. And to hear more from the Power in the Pandemic podcast, you can subscribe on all your usual podcast providers. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.